You guys heard, and I'm one of the elders and servant leaders in this body, and I always enjoy bringing the word to whomever, especially to my family. So I would ask you guys to um, stand with me as we work through Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. So if you want to turn to that. Today, you guys stand it. Did I say stand up? Wow. I'm so good, I didn't know. So sit down, sit back down, sorry. This is a practice of exercise to keep you awake during my uneventful sermon, so. Sorry. I guess I'm standing, so I get it. I don't know. Sorry. So today's sermon will be focused on our freedom and how this freedom is such a blessing that we need to be about telling others as God asks us to do. This is Mission Sunday. And our mission on earth is to do what? Glorify God. And the way that we glorify God is through telling others about Him and serving Him in a way that honors Him. This is how our freedom should bleed or go into the world. So the good news today, too, is that hopefully this message won't be too long. I uh, I always struggle with that because I spent a lot of time preparing. I know as Greg recently felt the time and energy it takes to prepare for a sermon. No matter how much I study, I still don't feel like I've studied enough. I have doubts about my study. I have all these things. So maybe if I start studying now next year at this time, I might be ready to bring you a message to which I'm confident in. But I will be confident in the Lord. How's that? As a side note, this week's been a tough week for the Harden family. Well, for me specifically, but we have lots of things going on in our personal life. One is we're selling our house and trying to build a new house. One is we have some health issues uh, in the family that are serious health issues. And two is my work has been very draining and demanding. Nothing out of the ordinary for a normal week, I must confess, in this uh, uh, wayful and woeful world, so it seems. But... The good news is we have a Savior, right? A Savior, and we have hope in that Savior. So today, before I get on with the sermon, I always have been told that a good sermon always has a good story. And I'm really not much of a storyteller, to be transparent with you. I'm kind of, if you, anybody knows me, you know that I'm a facts guy. I want just the facts, ma'am. And that's really what I want. And that's just my personality. But I'm going to let uh, Jerry Clyer. Now, who has heard of Jerry Clyer before he talks? Okay, so for a lot of you who've never heard of him, just try to listen. He's got an accent that's almost as thick as mine. And he will tell you a story about his upbringing. And so let's let him tell the story. But the key thing I want you to look at in the story is I want you to look at man's effort versus the outcome of the effort. So, whomever, please. We had a pack of hounds. When we went to mill with our corn to get it ground up, we'd get some ground for dog bread, and we'd get some ground for just regular corn meal for human consumption. This particular day, we wasn't too busy. All we had done is just cut down a few fence rows, shucked and shelled some corn and went to mill, drew up some water because that was wash day, Help get this sow back, what rooted out from under the net wire fence, sharpened two sticks of stove wood real sharp and pegged them down over the bottom wire of the fence where the hog couldn't root out no more. And 
had a rat kill him. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Uh, we had rat killings in those days. Well, this particular day after we got through the rat killing, I walked out on the front porch and I hollered. And them dogs come out from the house barking. They knew we was going coon hunting. And I hollered again, and my neighbor, way across the sage patch, hollered back. And that meant I'll meet you halfway. We met in the middle of that sage patch, and he had his dogs, old Brummy and Queen and Spot, and I had Tory and Little Red and old Trailer. And we went out into the swamps, and we started hunting. Oh, we was having such a fine time. Caught four great biggins. I heard a racket. And it scared me, and I whooped my carbide light, what I had wired to my cap around there, and I was looking in the vicinity of where I heard the racket coming from. And the beam of light hit a man right in the face, and it lacked him to have scared me, slapped to death, because we was hunting on this man's place. I said, Mr. Barron, is that you? He said, yes, Jerry. What are y'all doing? We hunting. How many have you caught? Four great diggums. He said, well, boys, uh, glad to see you. Y'all want to spend the rest of the evening hunting with me and John. Well, I looked, and lo and behold, that was John Eubanks, a man that lived on Mr. Barron's place. John Eubanks was a great American. He was a professional tree climber. He didn't believe, uh, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, he didn't believe in shooting no coon out of no tree. It was against his upbringing. He taught us from birth, from the day we were born till the age we could keep listening to him. Give everything a sporting chance. Whatever you do, give it a sporting chance. He'd have been a great conservationist today if he'd, if he'd be here. And John said, take a crosscut saw, coon hunting with you. When you tree a coon, hold the dogs and cut the tree down. Or either climb the tree and make the coon jump in amongst the dogs. Give him a sporting chance. A lot of times we climb a tree and make a coon jump in amongst 20 dogs, but at least he had the option of whooping all them dogs and walking off if he wanted to. This is strictly left up to the coon. So I said, Mr. Barron, we'd be glad to go hunting with you. You know, he was a rich man. He, he, he had sold a lot of cotton during the First World War for a dollar a pound. He had some world-renowned dogs. And we hollered three or four times, and they started hunting. And we listened, and directly, old Brummy, old Brummy didn't bark at nothing but a coon. He had a deep voice. And when he cut out on him, it was a coon. Don't worry about no possum or no bobcat. Brummy was running a coon. And an old trailer and old highball and them famous dogs and Mr. Barron's got in there with them and old John Eubanks would holler, hey, speak to him. And my brother son would holler, hey, look fun. And oh, it was beautiful. Now y'all get this picture. About that time they treed. We rushed down into the swamps. And there the dogs were treed up the biggest sweet gum tree in all of Amit River swamps. It was huge. You couldn't reach around this tree. There wasn't a limb on it for a while. Way up there, huge tree. And I looked around at John and I said, John, I don't believe you can climb that tree. And it hurt John's feelings. He pushed his lips out, got fighting mad. He said, there ain't a tree in all these swamps that I can't climb. And he got his brogan shoes off and he, 
eased up to that sweet gum tree and he hung his toenails in that bark and he got his fingernails in there and he kept easing up the tree, working his way toward that bottom limb and he finally got to it and he started on up into this big tree. Knock him out, John. It won't be long. And John worked his way on up to the top of the tree and what a big one. And he reached around in his overhauls and got that sharp stick and he drawed back and he punched the coon. But it wasn't a coon. It was a lynx. We call them souped up wildcats in Amen County. And that thing had great big tushes coming out of its mouth and red big claws on the end of its feet. And people, that thing attacked John up in the top of that tree. Wow! You can hear John squall. What's the matter with John? I don't have no idea. What in the world's happening to John? Knock him out, John. Wow! This thing's killing me. The whole top of the tree was shaking. The dogs got to biting the bark of the tree and fighting one another underneath the tree. And I was kicking them back. You dogs, get away. What's the matter with John? Knock him out, John. Woo! This thing's killing me. And John knew that Mr. Barron told her the pistol in his belt to shoot snakes with. And he kept hollering, Woo! Shoot this thing. Have mercy, this thing killing me. Shoot this thing. And Mr. Barron said, John, I can't shoot up in there. I might hit you. John said, well, just shoot up in here amongst us. One of us got to have some relief. So long. Sorry, I'm so long. But it's just a funny ending to a story of a man who is good at what he did. Right? Here's this man, John Eubanks, who could climb any tree, right? Self-proclaimed tree climber of the world, so to speak. And so I'll beat around the mic just to keep you all awake, just so you know. But anyway, he climbed a tree. And he got up there like he normally did, but guess what he found? More than he bargained for. He got more than he bargained for. And so in this story, the contemplation I'm asking you to think of is the fact that we as people often think we can't do it on our own. We have that belief. We have the belief that we have the ability to do whatever it takes. I'll self-proclaim that I do that. And my wife and kids can attest to it. But I always have this over-self-confidence that I can do it. But in reality, when it comes to our salvation, we can do nothing to make us, to make me right with God on my own. Nor can you. You do not have that ability. You are a sinful creature. And we'll talk about that in Romans today. So I'm going to focus on the packet, pa uh, passage of chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But I'm also going to read other parts of Romans and belabor this scripture so that we can put it in perspective. I think it's imperative that we do that. So considering my own salvation and my inability to achieve it myself, God affirms that for everybody on this, in this world. So and if you want to turn to Romans chapter 1 verse 18, I'm going to read several passages there through 24. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So who is without excuse? Everybody. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. I should, they should add computers in there too. But anyway. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul points out to us here in Romans 1 that we are all without excuse. And we'll go on to read Romans 3.23, which says what? Yeah, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there is good news, though, in this passage. This is the, the condemning passage. This is a passage that reveals to us the truth that we're without escape and we're all condemned. So now, if you don't mind, stand up. Let's read our passage, our main passage. Mainly, this is just to wake y'all up. I, anyway, just kidding. Let's honor God's word with my standing. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, who, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, I mean Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You may be seated. So let me open in a word of prayer. That was the intro. Let me open in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just come to you this morning in prayer to give you thanks and praise. Lord, we thank you for this example from a comedian, Lord, that just uh, goes to show man's uh, futile efforts do not and will not succeed. So Lord, we just thank you for today. I pray that you'd speak through me. 
Lord, and bring your word in a truthful way that brings you glory. Lord, I just thank you for this time. Bless it. And um, use me as an instrument in Jesus' name. Amen. So is chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 good news or what? It's great news. And we're going to expound on this good news because what is no condemnation? And what is the Spirit? You know, in Romans, the word Spirit is referred to one time before chapter 8. Once you get to chapter 8, it's referred to almost 20 times in chapter 8. So this is a transition, and the transition is an emphasis upon the Spirit and its empowering of us. So, to back up and put Romans into context, one author writes, Romans, Paul's magnum opus, is placed first among his 13 epistles in the New Testament. While the four Gospels represent the words and works of Jesus Christ, Romans explores uh, significance of his sacrificial death. Paul records the most systematic presentation of doctrine in the Bible. But Romans is more than a book of theology. It is also a book of practical exhortations. The good news of Jesus Christ is more than facts to be believed. It is also a life to be lived. A life of righteousness befitting the person justified freely by His, God's, grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Other commentators write, The poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge regarded Romans as a most profound book in existence. And the commentator Godet called it the cathedral of the Christian faith. Because of its majestic declaration of divine plan of salvation, Martin Luther wrote, This epistle is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. So the theology of Romans is balanced by practical exhortations, because Paul sees the believer's position as the basis for his practice. Think about that. Our position is the basis for our practice. So the theme of the book really uh, overall big picture is the revelation of righteousness in the first eight chapters, the vindication of righteousness, 9 through 11, and the application of righteousness of God. So there's three key themes of the book. Salvation, righteousness, and faith. Salvation is a believer saved from the penalty of the sin, past, present, and future, which we heard Brian say plenty, right? The, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. And as a believer, you are saved to a new position in life, an entrance into God's heavenly presence. Righteousness, this speaks of a perfect conformity to an unchanging standard. The sinner who trusts in Christ receives the righteousness of Christ in his position before God. Faith, as the instrumentality for salvation and the gracious gift of God, faith includes an acknowledgement of need and a trust in Christ alone for salvation. So the the section that I read in chapter 1 really 
uh, again, does away with anybody's self-justification process, right? If you are found guilty, then you are guilty indeed, and you're without excuse. So Paul builds a solid case for this condemnation of all people under, the holy, under a holy God. Paul perceives perceptive uh, diagnosis of the human condition shows that the Gentiles and Jews seek to justify themselves using relative standards, not realizing that God's required standard is nothing short of perfection. Paul knows that the bad news, which is condemnation, must be understood before the good news, which is justification. The Gentiles are without excuse because they have suppressed the knowledge of God that they receive from nature and their conscience. The Jews, of course, in Romans are not escaping from Paul's uh, testimony of no, I mean, of everybody's under condemnation. Paul overcomes every objection that they could raise in his conclusion in chapter 2. God judges according to truth, works, and impartiality. And both the mortal and religious Jew fail to meet his standard. Paul concludes his discussion of the reasons for the guilt of the Jew by reminding them they do not obey the law nor believe the oracles of God. The divine verdict is universal. 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the key next piece that we want to talk about is justification. Justification. So I'm going to read some more. So if you guys want to start uh, turning to chapter 3, verse 21. It's another section of Scripture in Romans, which I'll read next. So this section centers on the development of God's theme, His provision for man's need. His provision for man's need. So the first few verses are the core of the book, revealing that in Christ, God is both judge and Savior. So here we're talking about justification, Redemption and propitiation. Three twenty one and following. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins." It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will just... I'm sorry. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we 
then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, in that section we read three specific things, talked about three distinct things. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. So I don't want to blow you all out. I know I talk loud as it is. This uh, justification is the judicial term, and it means that the believer in Christ is declared righteous by the holy God. The Lord is not unjust when He justifies sinners because he, His basis on this pronouncement upon the de- is on the death of Christ on our behalf. Redemption. Through His death, Christ has paid <clears throat> the ransom price of sin by purchasing believers out of slavery to sin and setting them free from the penalty of sin. And last, the propitiation. The blood of Christ has satisfied the demands of the righteous God who cannot overlook sin. God in Christ does not give the believer his due because his holy salvation by his blood and by our faith and by faith. So four or five and six and seven go on to talk about we're going to read some seven here shortly as well, but go on to talk about Again, how the Gentile and the Jew is without excuse. We all fall short of God's righteous requirements. So in Acts 17.30 it says, The times of ignorance the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Raising him from the dead. So now let's dig into uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we read Romans chapter 1 about who was condemned. Right? So who was condemned? All. Everybody's condemned. So we read this condemnation. So, and specifically, the Jews historically have always struggled with what kind of condemnation? Self-inflicted because they could not follow all of the law. I mean, the Pharisees and Sadducees had the pious idea that they could, and they touted that with everybody around but they still could not and did not. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, who remembers what Brian called the Sermon on the Mount? Sh- shattering self-righteousness, right? Our self-righteous piety that we want to hold to says we can do it. It says that we have the power, like Mr. John Eubanks in the top of the tree. We have the ability to do it, but in reality we do not. We fall short. So condemnation, it occurs only three times in the New Testament, all of which, guess what, are in Romans. (laughs) And is used exclusively in in judicial settings as the opposite of justification. So if we have no condemnation, we are justified. It refers to a verdict of guilty and the penalty that the verdict demands. 
So no sinner, no sin a believer can commit, past, present, or future, can be held against them because of Christ. Since the penalty was paid specifically by Christ, and righteousness was imputed to the believer, and no sin can ever reverse that legal decision. As a result of their faith and identification with Him, the believing listeners are justified, declared righteous, and therefore stand in His grace, not under His wrath, and possess eternal life. Christ is a a sphere of safety for those who are identified with Him by faith. And uh, supporting verse, that is John 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So indeed, in verse 1, no condemnation. No condemnation through Christ Jesus. Verse 2, he expounds, For the law of the Spirit of life, the Spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what is this Spirit of life? What is he referring to? For the Spirit has replaced the law that produced only sin and death. Simple law that produces life is the law of faith. So the law they were under before, the law of sin, or the law and the fact that they could not appease the law by not sinning exposed sin for them. Right? Paul in Romans goes on and on. He says, the things I want to do, I can't do. And he also says, the um, sin was made known to him because of the law. Right? The law came, then he knew that he sinned, he was without excuse, and he still couldn't appease the law. So, and here's a good uh, fact in that for me, is when somebody says to you, don't do that, don't touch that, what's your inclination? Don't touch it, don't touch it, don't, I gotta touch it, I gotta, so you have this, a child is no different, right? The child, you say, don't, don't touch that, they're just waiting, watching you, right? Don't touch it. So we're the same way as people. We have this mentality of disobedience. That's our sinful nature. So when the law came and exposed that sin that we have, that we can't escape from. We don't have the ability to run from that. The only ability we have in that is to rest in Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's guidance through those things, through the uh, temptation. So Titus... um, I think it's 3.5, I left off the chapter. But He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So through this Spirit to which Paul starts to write about and starts to um, uh, detail for us the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit. So in this uh, discussion of the Spirit in the following verses, this is the power of the Spirit. He frees us from sin and death. He enables us to fulfill God's law. He changes our nature and grants us strength for victory over our unredeemed flesh. 
He conforms our adoption as children. He confirms our adoption as God's children and guarantees our ultimate glory. So this spirit that Paul's referring to was the free gift, is the free gift. Is given to us freely by and because of Christ and what he did on the cross through faith. So the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead who regenerates every believing individual and bestows new life, the resurrection life of Christ. From the law of sin and death, that principle is called the principle of sin and death. Because sin, Paul, as Paul said repeatedly, produces death. So... Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So no doubt the wages of sin, sin revealed to us by the law, and without excuse, according to Romans 1, produces death. As the principle of sin, it contrasts with the Spirit. As the principle that brings death... It also contrasts with the Holy Spirit who gives life. Alright, so if you would turn to uh, Romans chapter 7. Uh, verses 7 and following. What then shall we say? that the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That was the story I was given earlier. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once... I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So the law is not... While that is law and it does condemn you because of who you are, it itself is not unrighteous. It is not bad. Continuing on. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in within me. 
So I find it to be the law. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Theology indeed. (laughs) So, as I read this passage, I'm thinking God has satisfied the law. What does Scripture say about God satisfying the law? He satisfied it. He was the one perfect person that lived a life without sin, paid the price on the cross with all of our sin, being put to death, and rose again defeating death because of His perfection. He was the propitiation, the perfect payment for us before a righteous God. So that when God, by our faith in Him, when God stands before us in judgment, we are declared righteous because of Christ. Not because of anything that we have done short of receiving the gift. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says what? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, but a gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. It has nothing to do with us short of accepting the gift, the gift of faith, and having faith. So the other... I don't know what that is. So the other piece of this that I was thinking, this is a total bunny trail, I get it, and I'm probably going to go long and get shot, but this... uh, Are tattoos permissible? I want to see a show of hands. So first of all, those of you... This is just a Tyler survey for fun. I've been talking about this with other people, so I want to say... From your viewpoint scripturally, are tattoos permissible? Okay. And how about you that don't think they're permissible? Oh, we got a couple. Okay, so... Tattoos fall under what God-ordained law? Leviticus, right? Leviticus, God lays out all of these laws for... The people that are floundering about the wilderness, right? They're in the wilderness. Moses got plenty of time on his hands. He's got to, God's got to kill off these people that said no to going into the promised land. So Moses has lots of time to be sitting and writing. So it's like God, you know, goes and meets with God, and God says, write down these laws. So he's recording all these laws for the people of Israel. <clears throat> he's jotting them all down. And he's got, I don't know how many of them. They're just bunches and bunches, right? So in this segment of the law, it says do not get a tattoo or piercings, and it says all kind of things to not do. But this is the law to which Israel lived under. And what did Jesus do when he came? He satisfied the law. He satisfied every requirement of the law. You and I could not do it. Hebrews 4.15 says he did, right? We do not have a great high priest who has not been... Oh, now I'm going to forget it, but... It says... Somebody help me there. 
the, uh, who has not been tempted in every way as we have, but he has been tempted in every way that, as we have. So the point to all this bunny trail is there were laws that said, no, don't do that. But what happened when Christ came? He satisfied those laws. He satisfied them. And what did that help? What does Jesus say it did when he satisfied the law? It gave us freedom. We were not under the bondage of the law anymore. Right? So what is our only, not our only, but what is one of the requirements that we can't do as believers because of other believers? We, we can't cause other people to sin. Right? So if I know somebody, like I believe the Bible says it's okay to, to partake in alcohol. I can't drink around somebody who does not drink or is an alcoholic. Right? It would be my sin. It would be a sin against me because of what my, I'm tempting them to do. So in the same way, that the only prohibition I would see with, with a tattoo or, or body piercing or those other things, does it cause somebody else to sin by me doing it? Right? Being, now, there's obviously other things that you shouldn't do, right? But, you know, the, the fundamental obvious things, the Ten Commandments. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to... Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as... In this loving of the neighbor as yourself, a part of that is obviously not tempting your brother or sister in Christ to sin. A part of that. So that would be the, the injection of that. Anyway, we were talking about that and thought that would be a good time to discuss the tattoo because he's talking about sin and the law and all those good things. Okay, so uh, back to verses 3 and 4 of Romans 8. I probably should be wrapping this up, huh? I don't know what time it is. I only have 17 more pages of notes. So, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I don't quite have that many, but I will shorten it up. Okay, so verses 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, and that's why we read chapter 7 there, Weakened by the flesh could not do. So you got the law. It says don't do this. The flesh says what? I'm going to do it anyway. That's the weak link in that, in the law. We couldn't do it through the law. But yet God stepped in and did what the law couldn't for us. He paid the price for us so that, because He knew we couldn't meet the law. He knew we couldn't satisfy the law. And then it goes on to say how? By sending His own Son the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the point there is God Himself didn't come as a sinful man. He came as a sinless man. And when I was studying for this lesson, there was lots of commentaries that made the very clear distinction Jesus did not come sinful as a sinful man, right? Jesus' dad was who? The Holy Spirit. We, our dads, come through blood, right? It's through the blood of man. So through the first Adam, sin entered the world, and thus everybody sinned through man, through the blood of the man. Jesus' dad was not a fleshly dad. It was the Holy Spirit. Thus he didn't have that component in his flesh... He didn't have the component of a sinful man. So he came as a man indeed, but not as a sinful man. 
Verse 4 goes on, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, the righteous requirement of the law. So the law really got transferred, right? The law, the Mosaic law, the formal law that the Jews followed was ended. Well, it didn't end. It was satisfied with Jesus. But that satisfaction ended the... Um, Uh, I forget the word. It lost me. The formality of that law. But the law was transferred to humans now. Through man, through the Holy Spirit. So we, through the Holy Spirit, now carry out the law. That's the righteous, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Through the Holy Spirit. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen and 14. Everybody knows that, right? No temptation has overtaken you except as such is common to man. God will make a way of escape. I titleize it a bit, but... Alright, so also, um, if you want to study more on Jesus taking the sacrificial, taking our sins in His body on the tree, as Second Peter tells us, go to Isaiah 53 and read that. Isaiah 53. Uh, Philippians 2 7 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Likeness of a man, again, not sinful man. Okay, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So this is a very common theme in the New Testament, right? Ephesians 4 talks about it. Colossians 3 talks about it. Romans 12, 1 and 2 pound on this fact that in your mind you need to be renewed. And renewing comes through the Holy Spirit and God's Word. You don't need to be living in the flesh because your natural flesh does what? It runs back to sin. It runs back to the flesh. It wants to satisfy the flesh. But God is clear to say that God's Word through the, through the Holy Spirit living in our lives, we can overcome this sin by trusting and relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us through it. So when you say set your mind, it means not just thinking about it, but your affections, your mental processes, your will, all those things. Just because you're tempted to sin doesn't mean you have sinned. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to pull you past the temptation to not sin. So, the summary of verse 8, if you are in the flesh, thinking through the flesh, controlled by the flesh, rejecting the Holy Spirit, you cannot please God. You cannot please God. It is, you do as a human have the ability to suppress the Holy Spirit and choose to sin. Let your sinful flesh overrule. But that's, by faith, we trust the Holy Spirit to overcome the sin. That's the old man, like I said in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Alright, 9 and through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So an encouragement to us. We're no longer in the flesh, but we're trusting on the Holy Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And that's a, a good point to mention, 2 Corinthians 5.21 for that one. If, you, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So how will you have life in your mortal bodies? Through the Holy Spirit. Relying on God, receiving God, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, receiving the Holy Spirit, relying on the Holy Spirit to show you how to live, how to have life. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.53 says, For this perishable body, perishable body, must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Speaking of being saved and being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So today, like I said, was, is Mission Sunday. And Mission Sunday isn't the fact that only today we think of missions. As Jared was mentioning earlier, we're on missions all the time. Maybe Josh was mentioning that. All the time, we, we need to be about the missions of God. If we've been called by God and are saved by His loving grace, out of our gratitude for His saving grace in our life, we should be about telling others about Him. And telling others about the blessing and the freedom and the new life that we have in Christ Jesus the release of this bondage that we all feel without God, the bondage of satisfying others or, or pleasing the law or doing something right and thinking that's what gets us in good standing with God. We need to abandon those thoughts and trust and put our faith and trust into God. And we need to encourage others to do so also. We need to encourage others where the Word is, what the Word is, and tell them of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and His price that He paid on the cross for us. Let me pray and we'll be done. Dear Lord, we just thank You so much today. We thank You for Your Word, Lord. We thank You for the book of Romans. We thank You that Paul puts forth the truth in a short and concise way. Lord, we thank You for the simple exhortations that He calls us out for. We pray that You would empower us through Your Holy Spirit to listen to your wooing, to listen to your instruction, to be guided by your light instead of our own sinful nature. Lord, help us to set aside the old man, as Ephesians 4 says. Set aside the old man, put him off, and be renewed in the spirit of our mind, as Romans 12 says. Lord, help us to, to adhere to your word voluntarily, Lord, and out of a heart of gratitude. We thank you for today. and. Uh, just thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.